Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the second in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Later in this episode, we'll speak to IFI programmer David O'Mahony about his favourite picks from this year's Berlin Film Festival. But first, those of you familiar with the IFI's regular programming will know of our bigger picture strand, where every month we invite a guest to pick and introduce a film they love to IFI audiences. With the cinemas currently closed, we had to forego our April event, but I'm delighted that journalist Aoife Barry from the Journal.ie is here to chat about her film choice, the 1987 classic Moonstruck. Aoife, welcome to the iFi podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So let's dive straight in. For those who don't know anything about the film, tell us about Moonstruck. Sure. So Moonstruck is about a woman called Loretta Castorini, who's played by the incredible Cher, a woman who has had many different shades to her career over the years. Um, she plays someone who you wouldn't really associate with Cher, the, the kind of real life person. Um, Loretta is a bookkeeper and she lives in New York City. She lives in Brooklyn Heights. And basically when we meet her, she's she's about to get engaged to her boyfriend, who we kind of suspect she maybe isn't madly in love with. And she lives with her family. She works as a bookkeeper, as I said, and um, she's about to wave her boyfriend off on a trip to Sicily to be with his mother who's dying her boyfriend is estranged from his brother and she kind of goes and tracks down this brother um, when she, when they get engaged to kind of tell him about, about their love affair and everything and that's when things start to change for her and her life kind of she gets moonstruck shall we say and something kind of she didn't expect happens to her so you follow her and you follow her family as well there's kind of three families in the whole film so she's got the main story but you also get to know a few other couples and a few other relationships too through it It has a strange energy for romantic film at the start because the lead character basically admits that she doesn't love the man that she's going to marry. Yeah, it really is because like Loretta's just really practical. I mean, when you first meet her, I think it's one of the first scenes when you meet her, she's in um, an undertaker's. So she's doing the accounts there and she's having a discussion with the guy who works there. So you kind of get like death, you know, straight away at the start of the film. And then there's another scene where she gets a curse placed on her or a woman starts talking about a curse being placed on her when they're in an airport when she's saying goodbye to her boyfriend. So you get all these kind of like dramatic, really kind of awful, slightly grim moments happening within this film that you know is supposed to be... um, uh, romantic comedy but even though she's kind of got these th- those kind of sides to her she's also quite a light character in a way like you can tell she's not like really down in the dumps or anything she's just a very like practical woman she's a widow so she's had love before and you know um she was widowed very young she's only 37 when the film starts so you know that she's kind of like she's been there she's done that she's like right life isn't perfect I'll take what I can get this guy seems pretty nice we get on well we go to the same Italian restaurant to have dinner you know every week and let's just kind of you know get married and that'll be that and it is kind of weird to see her kind of accepting all of these things happening to her but I think that's why it's such an enjoyable film as well because it starts off completely different how you anticipate it's going to go. The film was a huge hit on release it was the second biggest rom-com of the 80s after when Harry Met Sally and it won three Oscars. For you what do you think were the elements that made it such a big hit with audiences and critics? 
So I think it's two things. I think it's Cher herself. She won the Oscar for her role in this film and deservedly so because she's just fantastic as Loretta Castorini. And I think also then it's the family, like the sense of family that you get in it. So even though it's like a romantic comedy, it's also like the the kind of relationships between family members as well too. So I suppose, first of all, if we start with Cher, her performance is just, it's so natural. It's so lovely. You just kind of, you really click with the character, I think straight away. Like even though she's been dealt these dark hands in life, and even though she kind of can be a little bit superstitious and things like that, and you might not understand her motivation straight away, she's a very kind of warm character at the same time. And you really follow through this kind of transformation that she goes through. And, you know, you see her kind of having to kind of deal with family drama, deal with relationship drama, but she retains her own kind of sense of individuality, I think, the whole way. Even when she has a bit of a makeover halfway through, she still feels like herself. And then I think you really get a sense of the different family characters in it. Like you get a sense of Loretta's parents relationship even though that isn't the world's greatest relationship shall we, shall we say you really feel for her mother Olympia Dukakis she's so great in it she's really you know she's kind of got this barbed side to her but she's very soft as well she has a really um, interesting short little relationship with uh, John Mahoney in it as well which is one of my favourite parts of it so I think the fact that you get this really strong lead so it's just like the real sense of, of Cher and all the, the kind of family relationships and the individuals you get to know them so well Aoife, we're just going to listen to a quick clip. This is a scene where Loretta, played by Cher, has just woken up in the bed of her future brother-in-law, Ronnie, played by Nicolas Cage. She'd gone over the day before to convince him to go to her wedding, and this is the morning after. You ruined my life. No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. You know, you've got the bad eyes like a gypsy, and I don't know why I didn't see it yesterday. Bad luck. That's it. Is that all I'm ever going to have? Oh. I should have taken a rock and killed myself years ago. I'm going to marry him. Do you hear me? Last night never happened, and I'm going to marry him, and you and I are going to take this to our coffins. I can't do that. Why not? I'm in love with you. Snap out of it! If I think that clip is so indicative of the film itself, that deadpan line, if I'd had a rock, I'd have killed myself years ago, it really flags that realistic, down-to-earth humour that goes through the whole film. Yeah, totally. And like her lines are just like, even when she's saying that, that she's in love um, with his with his character, Nicholas Cage's character, it's just kind of like, you know, I love him something awful. Or, you know, she just kind of is like, oh, for God's sake, you know, and there is that real deadpan sensibility, like you're saying, to so much of it, particularly with um, her mother, Olympia Dukakis's um, lines as well. And like, I think that like the dialogue is so clever and really smart, but then around it, you have all these other little cool things happening. So you have the like motif of the moon, which is reflected in the in the kind of mise-en-scene and, and, and different elements of it. Um, and you have like little quirky bits like there. Um, I think it's her grandfather that they live with who has a load of dogs and you see him like howling at the moon at one stage. So you have these like really strange moments that you're, you maybe can't quite make sense of immediately, but they really fit in within this this world. And I think um, like the title Moonstruck it, like evokes that idea that they're kind of trapped under this weird spell for a period of time. And that really comes through in it as well. I think there's like um, a full moon for like three nights or something in the, during the film. So like it, it exists in its own world. And I think the, the kind of quips and stuff like that um, like work towards creating the sense of that, that kind of wisecracking world that they're into. The film is so efficiently told. I, you know, you get the impression that if they were making it now, it would be a 10 part Netflix drama but in the first five to ten minutes you feel like you know the characters so well already 
Yeah, like the scene where you first meet um, Ronnie, Nicolas Cage's character, you get his like whole backstory in probably about a minute, you know, because of the kind of the physicality, the way he like displays himself, the fact he's like full of kind of anger and all this like simmering emotion. And when she meets him, they're they're downstairs in the bakery where he works. So they're kind of like in the subterranean, really hot room, you can imagine, Um, you know, it's really intense and you just get everything out of him. And I think that like that, that's what really, really works with that you get those those senses of people you know really really quickly um and you know it's it's said in in Brooklyn Heights you get that sense of space really really quickly as well because they don't really move too far out of where they are where they're living as well except when they go to to the Met to the opera so they're able to kind of really economically tell you like who these people are where they're where they're situated you go back to the same few places and the same streets over and over again and I think you know when I think about this film I just think how much thinking went into every single element of it like it's so smart you could be picking it apart every time you watch it and finding something new that you didn't notice the first time that was there deliberately to tell you something really quickly to make sure that that like economy of the story kind of works you know I was re-watching the film for a second time and I noticed that she goes to the Cinderella beauty parlor and then she goes to the ball by going to see the opera at the Met the film really does have a fairy tale like quality to it yeah, totally. And like, I think the kind of the idea of that makeover um, that Loretta goes through halfway through, it's it's a bit of a tricky one in films. As I think people of our generation think of films like She's All That, you know, like that would come out when we were teenagers, where they had this these idea of this makeover, the, the girl takes off her glasses and all of a sudden she's just like beautiful person and, you know, the whole tone around her changes in the movie. And so I, I can sometimes be a bit like resistant to that idea because I think it's, it could be a little bit of a shortcut and it could be kind of annoying because it doesn't tend to happen to the male characters and always happens to the female characters but I think in Moonstruck they really get away with how they transform Loretta because you actually feel like she gets a chance to blossom you know that she's been waiting there the whole time to become this happier um, version of herself and for you know about half of the film she's got like you know kind of grey streaks in her hair Um, she's not really dressed very brightly she's wearing a lot of black she's very kind of slightly I suppose slightly severe looking and then she gets a chance to you know she goes to the hair salon and and you get the sense that she's like treating herself rather than saying like all of a sudden I'm going to look like this much more sexy woman you know she's just kind of getting a chance to kind of live a little at a time when she hasn't really been doing a lot of living and she's been you know mourning her husband and stuff um so I, I love I love all that to it and I love that idea that of that fairy tale that you're talking about there and how, how that's evoked um and the moon theme in one way it could be a bit of a cliche to call it moonstruck to have the moon featuring like the whole way through the film but it, it just really captures you um like it captures the characters as well and like it kind of reflects to them the love and the relationships that they experience throughout the 90 minutes or so Aoife we need to talk about the performances um Cher and Olympia Dukakis obviously won Oscars for their roles but there's some brilliant ensemble pieces in the film I'm thinking especially of that couple that Loretta does the bookkeeping for and there's that beautiful scene where he's standing looking at the moonlight and his wife says in that light you look like you could be 25 years of age it's a beautiful evocation of their life together yeah, and like I love that. I really love love that older couple and that particular scene because they're like they're totally captured by the moment, and it's like it's a really kind of intimate scene. You feel like, oh, should I be watching? <laughs> should I be watching what's happening here? And it, it is a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought too heavily about that about the age of the cast because, like, even though Loretta is thirty seven, um, in the film, which I mean, by all accounts, is very young, she is presented as like an older 
you know romantic lead in it you know she's presented as a woman who's lived life and who's been through things and her you know the fact that her family as well like they're very kind of bedded into the area her parents are clearly married a very very long time and have been through a lot um as a married couple it's you've kind of got the the three generations that live in the house as well like family is really really strong and I think having the the older ages of the cast and it helps to show like those strong family bonds that continue even when you're into your 30s and 40s like did you because she's living at home with her parents and they still have a bit of a say in what's going on in her life like her dad in particular really cares about what she's doing and is not really uh, afraid to kind of give his opinion on stuff um so she's kind of trapped in a bit of her childhood while being an, an older adult at the same time and i think as well like going back to john mahoney and um olympia dukakis's moment when like he plays a character who's who goes out with lots of younger women we see him a few times in this restaurant that Loretta goes to having these disastrous dates with younger women and then he has a moment of connection with um, Loretta's mother and she kind of teaches him like to kind of grow up you know she's saying like you know you're not young anymore there's a bit about the film that is about growing up and that is about like accepting your age and accepting where you are um, but maybe reflecting back on what you have as well too because there are people in the cast like Loretta's father who aren't very appreciative of their life and they don't really have very positive things happening to them so there's a lot about that in it too I think you know about looking at, at where you are and, and you know where you see yourself and whether you're appreciative of, of the life and the family and the love that you have too. Aoife, we have to talk about Nicolas Cage as well. When we first meet him in the basement of the bakery, he really comes across as a little bit off kilter, which I suppose is not unusual for Nicolas Cage's performance, but he's a little bit hammy, a little bit over the top. He totally is. Like, I really did feel, especially the first or second I watched it, thinking like, this guy just feels like he's thinks he's in a different film but then you realize like like you said Nicolas Cage does that a lot and that's kind of his his thing and that's actually once you get into it it's really enjoyable you know that he just kind of goes full throttle um and like it could have been easy I'd imagine to get another guy to play that role who's a bit more romantic and who isn't so kind of angry and fractious and stuff but it's kind of realistic too in the sense that he has this bad relationship with his brother and suddenly this woman turns up um who's saying you know I'm engaged your brother come along to the wedding and he has to kind of lash out at his brother through her um and he, when you think about it too he's been through these this kind of trauma as well with his hand getting injured and he's very over the top about that but he's also over the top about you know his love or the lack of love in his life and that translates then also into like the, the kind of force of love and passion that he has for Loretta as well too um, and it seems like she kind of needs that like really that force of passion and that kind of awakes something in her too so him being such an over-the-top character actually really works when uh, you see the the kind of influence that he has over Loretta but at the same time she takes a while to kind of let him into her life and it's not really till they go to the Met um, to see the opera to see La Boheme and when they see that really dramatic and sad story that kind of is a moment of realization I suppose for Loretta and that that moment really connects them kind of as a proper couple I suppose in a way and and that that's such a dramatic opera as well then as well and somebody dies in that too you know <laughs> so there's more death in the film through the opera. What's interesting as well is the way the film looks to delineate between love and romance. Cosmo gets caught up in this situation um, of being 
uh, in love with his wife but seeking that romance with a younger woman yeah totally and like I remember being the first time I was seeing it just being really sad realizing that that was happening with her with her dad because like her parents were obviously had such a long relationship and you can see the sadness that she experiences when she realizes what's going on and, and that her mother is kind of a bit resigned to it when she realizes it too and like you're right there are those moments in it where people have to decide okay do I go down the romantic road or do I go down the kind of more practical road and Loretta at the start of the film is going down the really practical road and then all of a sudden she has this complete whirlwind of a man just landing in her life and um, you know what you were saying earlier about the economy of the story when you think about how quickly the romance happens uh, between her and Ronnie like it takes about two seconds but you understand immediately that they just kind of know they have this connection and they're meant meant to be with each other so yeah I mean the way it treats the relationships and treats the different the kind of family family relationships or romantic relationships is so interesting because even within even outside of the romantic ones like within the familiar relationships they also have to just accept each other as they are you know like Loretta might be really annoyed with her dad for being in Egypt but she still loves him because he's her dad you know so I think that that kind of reflects what happens in a lot of people's lives too and that's probably a lot of what connects people to this film I think that you can see yourself somewhere in this kind of madcap cast of characters um even if they don't totally reflect your own life and you don't have this you know Italian American family living in Brooklyn Heights you've got some relationship in your life that you can connect to and you know as the film goes on particularly in the last scene you realize how much of the film is about family and generations and the connections between generations and that's like really moving to realize I think as well at the end. I think it's a real testament to the charm of the film that even when you have this big coincidence in the middle where Loretta bumps into her father at the opera that you just completely buy into it. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's so I always think it's interesting when you think of like cliches and how sometimes you're like, that is so cliched. I can't even believe they did it. It just doesn't work for me. And yet other times you just think, yes, this feels completely right. You know, and I think it's it shows how like how lovely this film is and how well put together it is that because there's like so much thought put into every element of it, you accept those coincidences, you know, and you're like, okay, this makes sense that it would just they just happen to be on a date in the same place, even though I don't think Loretta had ever gone to the opera before you know and and it kind of I suppose because they are trying to contrast different relationships in it and it is a film all about relationships you know like those cliches are kind of acceptable in a way like you, you don't feel too put out by them um, and it works in moving the, the story forward it works in revealing something about the family and something you know to Loretta and it kind of moves moves the story forward yeah I, I know what you mean I, I like there are bits in it where you're like that's a bit tiny bit cliched but I actually don't don't care I, I really like that this happened Before we go, I just want to have a quick chat about the final scene. And again, we're not going to give any spoilers, but it really is an acting masterclass. There's not a huge amount of dialogue in this final section of the film. And so much is done through looks and glances. Yeah, totally. And it does have some coincidences in it, you know, people knocking at the door and turning up, turning up in the house or whatever. Before you know it, the the kind of the whole like film has come full circle into this kitchen where you have all these family members and like they're all kind of you know it's not a small kitchen right but they are kind of squashed around the kitchen table while all of this drama is unfolding and you're watching it wondering where it's going to go and even though it is quite heightened like with emotion like what you're saying is true there's not a huge amount of dialogue and 
I suppose when you when you think about it like families have their own language right they have their own body language they have their own looks and glances like we all have this shorthand within our families where we don't have to really spell things out for each other we can raise an eyebrow at a brother or sister and they'll know if you're annoyed or if you're happy or if you're trying to make them laugh and that's kind of true for this too isn't it that you they don't have to have these reams of dialogue to tell each other what they mean. There's just kind of an understanding and like an unfolding of what's about to happen in a very natural way. And, you know, there's a, this isn't spoiling anything, but there's a very, very kind of the last kind of pan out of the kitchen and, and around the kind of room next to the kitchen. You just see them there and you see the idea of family and you see these photographs of different family members and it all makes sense, you know. And I think that it's such a lovely last scene it just like really leaves you with this lovely kind of warm feeling even though it's quite a dramatic scene that you've watched and maybe not a positive scene for some of the people there well it's an absolute classic for sure and it's been a pleasure talking to you about it moonstruck is available to rent from sky store and available to buy from google play and itunes Eva barry thanks for joining us thanks million. when the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie that's when the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play to Film festivals around the world have been badly curtailed this year by the COVID-19 outbreak. Extended lockdowns in France have meant the Cannes Film Festival has moved from May to an undetermined date. As of now, the Venice and Toronto festivals will be nervously looking at their calendars, wondering which films and which filmmakers will be able to make the journey. Festivals which took place at the start of the year, namely Sundance, Berlin and the Dublin International Film Festival, will be counting themselves lucky that they managed to get their full programmes in just under the wire. IFI programmer David O'Mahony travelled to Berlin in February and he joins us now with his top picks from the festival. David, thanks for joining us again on the IFI podcast. No, it's great to be here, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, well, the studios, David, and the festivals themselves will be missing the profile and the glamour of the festivals. It's surely going to have an impact on cinema programming going forward. Yeah, it, it most likely will. I mean, we uh, programmers such as myself would attend international festivals. Uh, Berlin, which you mentioned that we'll talk about later, uh, Cannes, Venice, Toronto, etc. As those festivals really set the agenda, especially for venues like the Irish Film Institute, when we're showing a lot of you know, international film documentary and specialised titles. Those festivals really do, um, as I say, set the agenda for what's coming and they they kind of arrange a slate of titles that distributors will then be will be offering in the, in the coming months. So it has certainly put quite a spanner in the works when it comes to forward planning for the months ahead in terms of new releases and also in terms of festivals, uh, our own IFI festivals, which will be kicking off um, come late autumn and early winter. So... These films that are would have had their premieres at these international festivals, I mean, they haven't disappeared. They'll appear at some point. There may be quite a glut of films. So, you know, there could be a logjam towards the end of the year. And subsequent to that, because there's now like a hiatus in production, we may then see a subsequent famine next year. It's it's difficult to know, but it's it's definitely derailed my usual yearly and monthly programming strategy. So kind of remains to be seen. But as I say, these films will see the light of day at some point. It just things may get a little cluttered towards the end of the year. Surely the knock-on effects are going to be felt well beyond festival season. I know the Oscars recently changed their rule to allow films that premiere on streaming to be eligible for their awards, provided they had an original theatrical release date. So this is going to keep going into next year. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that slight tweaking is is fair and is to be commended. I think under the circumstances, I think like some films have had their, their premieres online and haven't been able to, you know, naturally haven't been able to see, to have a theatrical release. And I, I think it's it's right and fair that they be considered for contention. This will roll into next year, as I said. I, I, of course, I'm in the realm of speculation now, but I'm expecting things to get very, very busy in terms of the slate and the titles available towards the end of the year. And then it could thin out quite a lot next year so the you know the life cycle of COVID-19 as, as it's affecting the theatrical release schedules and it remains to be seen but um yeah um interesting times <laughs> with prices will come innovation though surely I'm, I'm sure we'll all work together and, and and figure out something in a sensible fashion it'll be a brave new world um as you mentioned you were in berlin in february for the the festival how was the atmosphere at berlin obviously the coronavirus crisis was really starting to kick off at that point was there a different atmosphere at the festival did it feel different yeah not really no to be perfectly honest with you i mean certainly it was in the news but it was i mean if you it's difficult i guess just to reflect or, or to recall just how quickly this all happened i mean it. When I was in Berlin, it was very much, it was something that was happening in, in Asia. And there was certainly a lot of talk about it, but it really hadn't impacted, or it certainly didn't impact in any way that I found obvious in Berlin, the processes or like the market, the screenings. I mean, there was certainly not a hint of social distancing or masks or you know, extra sanitary precautions or anything like that. It was essentially business as usual. Even though there was chatter about it, it there certainly wasn't any measures in place. It felt, it felt like a regular festival. I mean, the real talk of Berlin this year was the closure of one of the main venues, which is in, in the Sony Center in, in Potsdamer Platz. There's an eight-screen venue, the Cine Star, that closed. Now, that threw program, um, Berlin's program into disarray. It had to out farm out a lot of its screenings that would have taken place there um, north, south, east, and west of the city. And if you're anyway familiar with Berlin, Berlin is enormous. So that meant this year there's a heck of a lot of traveling whereas the market screenings used to be centralised. So regardless of what was going on with, with COVID in the East, the, the main talk of Berlin was the closure of the venue. So uh, back to your original question, it didn't really impact. No, it was really only when I came home, probably when I was flying home the first couple of days back, that it really started to ramp up. And that would have been around the time that the Dublin Film Festival were in their second week, so the first week of March. And that's when we, uh, at the IFI, we had quite a number of events linked with the Dublin International Film Festival, such as the two real art shows, um, Careers Day, etc., all of which were extremely busy. And one of the real art shows was completely sold out. So while it was very much coming down the tracks at that point, it wasn't really impacting on festivals. But it was very soon after that the Dublin Film Festival finished that the lockdown took place. I mean, what was the 12th, 13th of March? Diff was only was over less than a four week. Four days, almost. yeah. I mean, the, four the, days, there you go. Yeah. yeah, Diff finished on the 8th of March and then the lockdown began on the 13th. So four days. Yeah, yeah. So um, it happened extraordinarily speedily, very, very quickly. It took everybody by, um, it took everyone by surprise. But no, Berlin, it did seem to be business as usual in that respect. Well, let's, let's cast our mind back then to the films that you saw at Berlin. And we're going to kick off with uh, the new film by Josephine Decker called Shirley, um, which stars Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlberg, a kind of an indie film, Match Made in Heaven. Tell us a little bit about this one. <laughs> Very much. Uh, so Shirley, the titular Shirley, is, is Shirley Jackson, the American kind of gothic horror writer who's very much back in vogue now thanks to the incredibly successful Netflix miniseries of her, I guess, her most famous novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which was made 
in a horrific fashion many, many moons ago by Jan de Bont with Liam Neeson. I don't know if you recall that one. Certainly not one for the annals. But anyway, this the miniseries that Netflix made um, with Mick Flanagan, who also made Doctor Sleep this year, terrific horror director, has really put Shirley Jackson kind of back in vogue. And this film is, as you say, it's indie match made in heaven. It focuses in the early 1950s when Shirley Jackson, as portrayed by Elizabeth Moss, brilliantly portrayed by Elizabeth Moss, is focusing on her second novel, which was to be Hangs a Man. And it's very much a relationship drama. It focuses on her and her relationship with her husband, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, and specifically about a young couple that her husband, who's a a professor in university, invites a young couple to come and stay with them. And Shirley becomes fixated, obsessed almost, with the young woman in this young couple and becomes almost a romantic uh, kind of a sexual obsession with this young woman. So it's all, it's a very intense chamber piece, a very kind of claustrophobic drama. Doesn't really focus on her as, you know, a writer of horror fiction, uh, you know, doesn't kind of delve into that or her famous celebrity. It's very much an interior claustrophobic character study of the type that Elizabeth Moss essays very, very well. She's kind of making that her own. She's terrific in this. She completely inhabits the interior life world of Shirley Jackson. She looks amazingly like her as well. They've done very little work to make her look extremely like her. So it's very intense, very, very well acted. And as I say, I would imagine this film will get a release at some point. It, it you know, is certainly certainly one that uh, we would happily program at the IFI if and when it does uh, get added to release schedules. It sounds like a bit of a breakout for Josephine Decker because I know her last film, Madeline's Madeline, got a very limited release, but the reviews on that were really superb. Yeah, and actually, I saw Madeleine's Madeleine uh, maybe two Berlins ago, since we're talking about Berlin. Again, a very interesting film, a much smaller film, though, a much more kind of challenging uh, experimental drama. But again, very, very rewarding and certainly worth checking out if people are looking for a prelude to Shirley. It's definitely one to check out. Shirley is definitely a bigger production. It's got you know, name actors. It's a period drama. So, you know, there's all the trappings that come with that. So it is a bigger production for Josephine Decker and one that I, I think that would put her on more of a kind of a world stage. It's certainly around awards uh, for awards contention as well. As I say, Elizabeth Moss is, has never been better than this. So she may certainly be looking for, uh, she will be clearing some shelf space for this one at some point. Beside all the awards that she has for The the Handmaid's Tale. We're going to move to France now. Um, two names which might be familiar to um, IFI regulars are Benoit Delépine and Gustave Curverne, who visited the IFI at the uh, 2016 IFI French Film Festival with Saint-Amour. The new film, Delete History, won The Silver Bear at Berlin. Tell us about this one, David. Yes, um, they did indeed. They have a, uh, we have a long history at the French Film Festival, the i5 French Film Festival. We've showed many of their films. I know apart from Santa Moore, we showed uh, Mammoth, which Jared Depper do. We showed I Feel Good two years ago, I believe it was a cover image of our program. So this is, uh, this is hilarious. I love this. They're, they're famous for very droll, sardonic, kind of offbeat, eccentric comedies. This is more of a crowd pleaser. It's a, as, you say, as you say, it's called Delete History. So it focuses on three characters from the, in a small town, all of whom are uh, struggling with the online world, with social media and their relationship with tech and technology. And they all in their various ways try to, I guess, re- rebel against that and try to remove themselves completely from social media, from the online world. And essentially they go on a road trip to try to confront tech giants and kind of confront, basically trying to break the internet. And it's it's a completely absurd comedy. Uh, it's very very funny. I, I think this would be an absolute winner. If you know, who's to say we may even be seeing it at the French Film Festival this year, which will be 
which would be wonderful. But there's some fantastic characters in it. I think there's one character, Christine. She's an Uber driver, but she only ever gets one star reviews and she can no longer handle this. So that is the, that's the impetus for her deciding to kind of remove herself entirely from, from uh, technology and the online world. So it, it's absurd, but it's, it's very funny, very inventive. I mean, as, as I said, they have, they have a very droll, eccentric way with humour. They're great visual gags. Anyone familiar with the work will, will, will know that and will recognise a lot of that in this. This is perhaps less sentimental than some of the recent work. It's more of a straightforward comedy. And I think it's all the better for that. The, most of the jokes land. It's very witty. It's very it's very wry and like anyone who has spent 10 minutes trying to figure out a captcha where they're clicking on all the squares that have a lamppost in it will find a lot of laughs to be had in this there's, there's a lot of kind of constant cavalcade of gags around our relationship with social media and online and messaging and uh, the frustrations inherent in that so um, yeah I, th- I think this is this is one that would genuinely be a breakout crowd pleaser Let's take a sharp turn left and talk about the new film from Kelly Reichert, who is the director of Meeks Cutoff, Wendy and Lucy, Certain Women. Um, she's well known for her thoughtful, slow-paced dramas. Does this fall into that category as well? It certainly does. It certainly does. But I think this is her best film. I absolutely love this. It's gorgeous. It's a warm-hearted ode to friendship and humanism and and gentleness and kindness and it's just it's disarming and it's really 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 lovely it's another western as uh, as you mentioned meeks cut off this is her second western it's 19 very early 19th century oregon and it's a tale of an unlikely friendship with two characters one called cookie and his, his name is relevant is is a wanderer he's, he's a fur trapper he's kind of just sort of trying to find his, his way in the world and the frontier and he meets up with a Chinese immigrant called King Lu. And together, the two of them, as I say, form an unlikely friendship formed around uh, baking. It turns out that Cookie is, is quite, a, quite a chef and quite a baker. And they uh, hit upon what looked like kind of an early form of donuts. They call them oily cakes. And they're a sensation. They start selling them at market. They're a huge hit. And their fame goes far and wide. However, the wrong ingredients, wrong ingredients that they need, milk and flour, and especially milk, are very hard to find. And there is only one cow, the first cow that has been brought to the territory. And uh, milk must be, must be taken illegally. Now, that forms the basis of, as I say, a very languid, gentle, warm and funny ode to friendship. It's, it's absolutely, it's disarming. It's, it's really beautiful. And certainly, uh, can't wait to bring it to the IFI. I would imagine this will certainly get a release. I was just going to say, I mean, her reputation is so immense, uh, certainly among American independent cinemas, that it's, it's sure to get a, a fairly wide release here at some point in the year. Yeah, yeah. And aside from the two leads, I mean, the, the cast is really cluttered with wonderful little cameos. Toby Jones pops up and like many other, other character actors that people will be familiar with that, that round it out and make it a deeply pleasurable, warm experience. Um, and certainly when I saw it in Berlin and often international film festivals can be, you know, there can be a surfeit of very heavy dramas, very kind of intense subject matters. This was a breath of fresh air. It was just so gorgeous. <laughs> and I think many people I spoke to, it was by far their favorite film playing in competition. We're going to stay in the US for this next choice, albeit a very different US. Um, I was a big fan of Elisa Hitman's film Beach Rats a couple of years ago. Her latest one, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, is a very striking story. Yeah, this is terrific. And Beach Rats was, was great as well. This is, it's a, it's, it's a very intense drama centered around 17-year-old girl, uh, Autumn, in a terrific terrific performance by Sid, Sidney Flanagan, real breakout performance. And she's living in a, in a you know, sort of a nowhere town in Pennsylvania, a very conservative backdrop. And uh, she finds herself experiencing an unwanted pregnancy. 
and she feels she can't rely on her family for any assistance or support to kind of tell them. So she turns to her cousin, Skylar, and the two of them make a clandestine trip into New York to fix the problem, as she puts it. The film takes, that is essentially the structure of the film. It's a road trip to New York. They have barely $2 to scrape together. I mean, everything is, everything is predicated on, like, can they get the bus and can they get the bus into the, into the facility where the, the operation is going to take place? And it's this hand-to-mouth, kind of fretful, fearful couple of hours, couple of days in the lives of these two girls, almost told in real time. I mean, you feel like you're on this quest, for want of a better word, with them. It's, it's very moving. It's, it's very stripped down, very lean. Reminded me a little bit of like something by the Dardens when you're just following two people on a mission to get something done. And it's a grim task that they have to do. And they've only got each other to rely upon. Having read many of the reviews, comparisons with four months, three weeks and two days were inevitable. Are they justified or is it a little bit of an unfair comparison? Um, I think there is, well, it's perhaps a, more of an accessible film than that Romanian masterpiece. It, they're not unjustified, though. I mean, it, it is it, a very challenging subject. It's a difficult film and it's, the, the subject is, is tackled very forthrightly and, and honestly. While it, it may not be as a graphic film in terms of the content on screen. I mean, the Romanian film was quite famous and it's, you know, almost daring the audience to look away through some of those grueling sequences. It's certainly not on, in that vein, but it is a very difficult film. It's a challenging subject matter and, uh, as I say, it doesn't shy away from it. It's very honest and it's a very powerful, very, very rewarding film that I think would be, you know, will resonate hugely with audiences. Speaking of challenging, and I think ambitious is also a word that could be used for this next choice of yours. Um, tell us about the Dow Project. The Dow Project. Okay, so this is the brainchild of, well, he was young, Ilya Kurzanovsky, and he's been working on the Dow Project for, from my estimation, about 15 years now. Essentially, he uh, cast your mind back to the early noughties. He started making a film about Lev Landau, who was a Russian theoretical physicist, and he ultimately abandoned that film to focus on a larger project. Uh, essentially, he recreated the physicists, uh, the Institute, which is this colossal institute under Stalin's reign that became the biggest set in European history and still is the biggest set in European history. And for weeks, months, uh, nay, years, his cast and crew of hundreds, uh, possibly thousands of extras lived and worked and ate and breathed their their roles 24-7 in the Institute. I mean, they it's somewhere between a, a mammoth art installation and a conceptual piece that has been going on for so long that it became the stuff of lore and legend. I mean, people would talk about the Dow Project, but nothing was coming out of this. And then all of a sudden last year, there was you know, the first emanations from it. Uh, I think a couple of the films that, uh, that came from the project showed in Paris. And now Dow Natasha, has popped up in competition in Berlin. And there was also in another one of the strands of Berlin, Dow Degeneration, um, which is all of six hours long, played. And subsequent to that, on Dow.com, now if you check that out, many of the films are being released and you can rent them for, I think it's $3 or something like that. It's all quite cheap. So I think there's 14, 15 films, something of that nature, have emerged from the Dow project. So I, in competition, saw Dow Natasha, which is the film we're talking about now. So it's, I guess it's kind of difficult to look at the film in isolation. I mean, it, it's, it's often a, you know, a good idea to forget everything about what went into the making of the film. And it's useful just to, just to look at what's up on screen and forget everything else. I think in this instance, it's almost impossible to 
redact all of what you know about the DAO project when you're watching down Natasha, which is a very interior, intimate, claustrophobic drama. Very, very reminiscent, I found, of the... Do you remember the, the Dogma 95 films that gave yes. Lars von Trier? All, all of those, those great films. Um, it has something of that to it in that, you know, use of natural lighting, you know, non-professional actors, challenging subjects, quite violent, sexually very explicit, very intense. The, like, what's happening to the characters feels lived rather than portrayed. Um, you know, it all feels very, very organic and authentic. So Diana Natasha is about a waitress and her relationship with one of her, one of her co-colleagues. She has um, a brief fling with a visiting, um, visiting scientist and that puts her in the spotlight of the KGB and she's subjected to some uh, extraordinarily brutal interrogation sequences which form the centerpiece of the film. So it's a challenging watch, certainly, but it's really, really compelling. It's, it's incredibly acted, well acted. It just feels so other and <laughs> unusual but authentic like it genuinely feels uh, real it feels like you're you're almost you're, you're privy to something that has that has taken place and it immediately made me want to check out more uh, more from the Dow project just to see how that little story because it is it's a very small narrative given the scale of this 15-year endeavor it immediately made me want to see how it knits into the tapestry of the of the wider project so now we have this opportunity as i mentioned with dow.com you can you can rent some of these other films a died generation is there as well the one i mentioned it was in another strand of berlin uh, so it's it's a remarkable project i mean it sounds very much like schenectady new york come to life it is very much like uh, schenectady in new york yes it's impossible to not think of that as well while reading about the Dow project yeah exactly and that was brilliant so <laughs> but it's certainly worth as i say it's not for the faint-hearted this one particular film we're talking about down natasha it's it's a grueling watch that central interrogation sequence i mentioned is uh, very very challenging and will be very off-putting for a lot of people but you know these um Everybody taking part in this has gone into this project, I, I believe, with their eyes wide open. I mean, I've read quite a lot about it now. And uh, the, the character of, of this uh, director, impresario, what are we to call him? Uh, Ilya Kurzanovsky has been um, variously described as a dictator and a genius. So, you know, who knows? But he started this when he was incredibly, incredibly young, his late 20s. And apparently, like, not a cinephile, very unaware of, of film history. There's just a very intriguing character. And certainly just to rate the project on this one film alone, Dan Natasha, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's, it's it's entirely successful. And I would definitely look forward look forward in advertent comments perhaps to um ex- exploring uh, some of the other emanations that are now available on, on the internet. So if you're looking for an antidote to some of the summer sunshine, it sounds like Dow.com is the place to go. Um, keep an eye out for Shirley, Delete History, First Cow and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which will hopefully be coming to either a cinema or a streaming service near you later this year. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Stephen. We're off to have some oily cakes. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the iFi podcast and we'll see you back here next Friday. Bye for now. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.